Week 1 Lecture, January 17th, An Introduction to Introduction to Research and Each Other. Welcome, new friends. I'm excited to get started with you this semester. First, I'd like to give you a little information about myself in this class. Probably the most important thing to know is that I love teaching, and I especially love teaching this class. I am a complete nerd when it comes to both. I'm super invested in teaching you how to use your existing skills and develop new ones to design and conduct an enjoyable research experience. I think research can and should be fun. That doesn't mean it's always easy or that you won't be challenged, but I think life is easier when we enjoy what we're doing, or at least see some larger purpose to it. That's why you will choose your research topic. If you're indecisive like me, that might stress you out, but we'll talk a lot in class about how to choose a researchable topic that can keep you engaged for a whole semester. Because this is a hybrid class, we'll only meet once a week, so I want to make sure we use our somewhat limited time together wisely. I'll post everything you need to read, watch, and or listen to on our Blackboard page. I would strongly recommend that you watch the Blackboard tour screencast I posted in this week's folder to acclimate yourself to how the page is set up. There are a ton of resources for you, some of which we won't discuss in class that should help you improve your writing and research skills. For example, the APA resources and writing tips folders. Now, let's review some important parts on the syllabus. I encourage you to skim the entire thing when you have a chance, but for now, here's what you need to know. My contact information is on page four. You are welcome and encouraged to use it. Like most of us, I respond quickest to texts, but you're also welcome to call if you'd prefer talking in real time. You may need to leave a message because I get a lot of junk calls, but I'll certainly call you back. I'll arrive on campus about an hour before class each week. I generally use that time as office hours. I'll also hold virtual drop-in office hours on Zoom every Thursday from 7 to 8 p.m. And if neither of those times works for you, let me know what will. I have a fairly flexible schedule and can arrange a virtual meeting almost any time. I teach using a strategy called Universal Design for Learning, UDL for short. You'll primarily notice it in the various formats I use to present information. I post audio narrations for all required readings for students who remember material more effectively when they hear it rather than read it. This seems to help students with conditions like dyslexia and ADHD, but it's also useful if you just have a short attention span for reading or you don't have time to sit in front of a computer and read the week's materials. Likewise, I post transcripts for all video and audio recordings I create so that if you prefer to read rather than watch or listen to content, you can do that. UDL has helped me design a course that's accessible to all learners, not just people who learn in certain ways. That said, if you have suggestions for other ways I can adapt to specific needs, let me know. I'm always open to making modifications. Another thing to note about this class, it's a W1, which means it's writing intensive. It's typically true that about half my students, sometimes more, don't like writing or don't think they're good at it. That's okay. You don't need to like writing or research for that matter to do well in this class. In my experience, many students who don't think they're good writers actually mean something very different. They might not be good at spelling, grammar, or punctuation. While these are a very small part of writing, they do not make up the entire writing process, and they're typically easy to fix. Sometimes, students mean they take a while to get their thoughts down on paper and or then have to revise their writing a bunch of times. Good news there, too. Writing isn't a time-limited activity. The important thing is to get started and then work with what you have. Writing is a process, and if you can figure out what process works best for you, then you've just solved the biggest part of your problem. Now let's talk about how class sessions will go. 
First, it would be excellent if you could bring a laptop to class. If you don't have a laptop, a tablet or phone will also work. We'll do a lot of group work in this class, but it will be helpful for everyone to have access to their own screens. As I mentioned, everything you'll need to review for class will be posted on Blackboard. The content in each weekly folder is directly connected to writing assignments you'll do, so it's important to stay current with the material. New folders will be posted on Mondays of the week prior to when we'll discuss that content in class. So, for example, I will post the week three folder on Monday, January 22nd for discussion in class on Wednesday, January 31st. That means you have more than a week to review each new folder. Our in-person class sessions will generally go like this. I'll start with a brief review of new content. At that time, I'll display the Q&A Padlet on the screen so students can ask questions during this review. You can also verbally ask questions, of course. Then, we'll do group work related to the new content and related writing assignments. Before you start groaning about group work, a note. It is not simply busy work. I understand some people aren't natural collaborators. I myself am more of a lone wolf, but group work in this class works really well. Each week, you'll rotate roles. The facilitator helps the team focus, manages time, and encourages everyone to speak. They may also facilitate discussion when there's disagreement in the group. The reporter asks questions and presents the team's findings to the class. The recorder writes everything down. Ideally, you'll all develop skills unique to each role. As groups, you'll complete in-class activities that are usually worth 10 to 20 points. At the end of class sessions, we may occasionally have quizzes. I'll give you advance notice of them. Let's talk about attendance for a minute. While I no longer grade attendance, students who miss in-class activities or quizzes cannot make them up so you are effectively losing points by not being here. Also, unless I receive an email from a university entity like someone from the care team requesting you be excused from class for a documented reason, I don't differentiate between excused and unexcused absences. You're either here or you're not. And you really need to be here physically. I don't allow students to zoom into class because it would be difficult for you to do group work without actually sitting with your group members and doing it. And now, technology. I love technology. We'll use it a lot in this class, but we all also know how distracting it can be. When you are in class, be here. I don't require students to turn their phones off, and I don't penalize you for looking at them occasionally, but I want us to engage with each other, which we can't do if our faces are glued to screens. In my experience, students stare at their phones throughout class for one of several possible reasons. They're bored, they're anxious, they feel trapped, or they're addicted to screens. I offer suggestions on the syllabus for addressing all these concerns. In short, if you get bored easily, bring something to class to occupy your hands. Lots of educational and psychological research shows this actually helps you take in and remember new information. If you're artistic, bring a sketch pad. If you're a crafter, bring a knitting project. If you're just fidgety, bring a fidget. I'll come to class with some you can use. I have ADHD and I know how hard it can be to sit still for 10 minutes, let alone 90. I'll try to ensure we get up and move around sometimes and that we vary our in-class activities so you don't have time to get bored. But even when I don't, there are ways of addressing that boredom. Let's discuss assignments for this class. Written assignments are the crux of your grade and you really only get better at writing by doing it over and over. So I have a fairly liberal resubmission policy. If you turn in written assignments on time, you can resubmit them up to three times each for a better grade. When you resubmit, you need to include a brief reflection on what changes you made and why you made them. If you turn in an assignment late, you won't lose points 
but you will lose the chance to resubmit it for a higher grade. All right, now that we've gotten all that syllabus stuff out of the way, let's talk about research. In the week one folder, you'll find a few resources to get you started. The introduction to Introduction to College Research, an open access textbook, and the What is Research link provide helpful ways to think about what research actually is, while the What is Research Writing link gives you a pretty simple way of thinking about how we communicate about research. They're good principles to keep in mind as you move through the semester. Finally, a note about the last link to how Digipo defines a fact, which comes from another open access textbook. The guy who wrote it, Michael Caulfield, is a media literacy expert who's been talking for well over 20 years about how to understand and use the information we encounter online. I'm a big fan of his work. At one point, I think around 2016, he created something called the Digital Polarization Initiative. That's what Digipo stands for, to help students think about the conflicts that arise from how digital information is shared. In doing so, they could help prevent it. The project no longer exists, but I love the way they defined a fact, which is why I included that link here. How you define the term makes all the difference in what you accept as valid evidence for your research thesis. And who you consider to be an expert also matters. It varies widely across research topics. I think that's enough information for now. We'll chat about some of this in our first class session. See you soon. Chapter 1, Introduction from Introduction to College Research. Learning Objectives. By the end of this chapter, you will be able to define information literacy. Why this book? The key to success in college research is to develop and hone your information literacy skills. These skills will prepare you to find and use information not only for college, but also in the workplace and your personal life. Having strong information literacy skills will make you a more thoughtful and effective consumer and creator of information and will increase your awareness of and resilience toward the psychological, physiological, and sociological effects of living in a society overloaded with information. According to Breakstone and others, quote, recent events underscore the threat that digital illiteracy poses to public health and democracy, end quote. What is information literacy? Some of the skills and abilities that fall under the umbrella of information literacy include research skills, critical thinking, media literacy, digital literacy, news literacy, algorithmic literacy, ethical reasoning, and civic engagement. Information literacy acknowledges that students are not just passive consumers of knowledge, but that you are active creators and participants in the information environment. It is a set of skills that aims to help students navigate this landscape, quote, not just for college courses, but beyond, in the workplace, in their personal lives, as lifelong learners, and as news consumers, creators, and voters." End quote. You might also hear this idea referred to as information competency, which is an equivalent term. According to Head and others, quote, information literacy is an integrated set of skills, knowledge, practices, and dispositions that prepare students to discover, interpret, and create information ethically, while gaining a critical understanding of how information systems interact to produce and circulate news, information, and knowledge. End quote. National and international perspectives. In the U.S., the Obama administration made information literacy a priority. The 2009 Presidential Proclamation on National Information Literacy Awareness Month stated that, quote, over the past decade, we have seen a crisis of authenticity emerge. We now live in a world where anyone can publish an opinion or perspective, whether true or not, and have that opinion amplified within the information marketplace. 
At the same time, Americans have unprecedented access to the diverse and independent sources of information, as well as institutions such as libraries and universities, that can help separate truth from fiction and signal from noise. The ability to seek, find, and decipher information can be applied to countless life decisions, whether financial, medical, educational, or technical." End quote. Internationally, the Alexandria Proclamation of 2005 defined the term as a human rights issue. Quote, information literacy lies at the core of lifelong learning. It empowers people in all walks of life to seek, evaluate, use, and create information effectively to achieve their personal, social, occupational, and educational goals. It is a basic human right in a digital world and promotes social inclusion in all nations." End quote. According to the Framework for Information Literacy for Higher Education, quote, information literacy is the set of integrated abilities encompassing the reflective discovery of information, the understanding of how information is produced and valued, and the use of information in creating new knowledge and participating ethically in communities of learning." End quote. Overview. This book acknowledges our changing information landscape, covering key concepts in information literacy to support a research process with intention. We start by critically examining the online environment many of us already engage with every day, looking at algorithms, the attention economy, information disorder and cynicism, information hygiene, and fact-checking. We then move into an exploration of information source types, meaningful research topics, keyword choices, effective search strategies, library resources, web search considerations, the ethical use of information, and citation. Key questions. Throughout the book, we will explore a number of critical and timely questions, including, are Google search results really an unbiased presentation of the best available information on a research question? How do algorithms and engagement on digital platforms influence the way that we perceive information and each other? In a world of misinformation and disinformation, how do we determine truth? How do we know which sources of information to trust? When we find a source of information, how can we verify that it is a reliable and effective piece of evidence for our research? Why might it be valuable to include different information types and formats in our research? How do we recognize when a resource has bias? whose voices are included in our research, and whose are left out. Why is choosing a topic so often the hardest part of the research process? What are some strategies for developing a meaningful research topic? How do we break a research topic into an effective combination of keywords and phrases for searching? How can we avoid confirmation bias when choosing our keywords? How do we search and find information through our college library? How are the materials organized in the library? What are library databases and how are they different from Google? What kinds of information can be found in these databases? And what are the advantages of using them? How has web search become embedded in our daily lives? And what conveniences and concerns does this present? How can we conduct academic research effectively on the web? When we engage in the scholarly conversation through research, how can we respect intellectual property and academic integrity by using sources ethically? And how can we give credit to the work of others by citing our sources in MLA, APA, or another style? What is research? From the English Composition II Open Access course. At its most basic level, research is anything you have to do to find out something you didn't already know. That definition might seem simple and obvious, but it contains some key assumptions that might not be as obvious. Understanding these assumptions is going to be essential to your success in this course and in your life after college, so I'm going to spell them out here. 
First, research is about acquiring new information or new knowledge, which means that it always begins from a gap in your knowledge, that is, something you don't know. More importantly, research is always goal-directed, that is, it always begins from a specific question you need to answer, a specific gap in your body of information that you need to fill in order to accomplish some particular goal. If you are a very focused, driven person, this will seem obvious to you because you are probably already quite aware of yourself as someone who goes after the information you need in order to accomplish your goals. If you tend to be more laid back and open to whatever experiences life brings you, you may not be as conscious of yourself as a goal-directed finder of information, but I hope to help you recognize the ways in which research is already embedded in your life. So the definition of research is anything you have to do to find out something you didn't already know. A research question is your one-sentence statement of the thing you don't know that motivates your research. Sometimes the answer to your question or the information needed to fill your knowledge gap already exists in exactly the form you need. For example, question one, does Columbus, Ohio have a commercial airport? The answer to this turns out to be yes, and the time to find the answer is about 10 seconds. A Google search of airports in Ohio produces as its first hit a Wikipedia entry titled list of airports in Ohio. A quick glance at the document shows that Columbus does indeed have a commercial airport and that it is one of the three largest airports in Ohio. Question two, do any airlines offer direct flights from Kansas City to Columbus? The answer to this appears to be no, and the time to find the answer is about two minutes. Using Travelocity.com and searching for flights from MCI, Kansas City International Airport, to CMH, Port Columbus International Airport, gets the message, we've searched more than 400 airlines we sell and couldn't find any flights from Kansas City to Columbus. Doing the same search on Expedia.com and Orbitz.com yields the same answer. There appear to be no direct flights from Kansas City to Columbus, Ohio. Often, however, the questions we need to have answered are more complicated than this, which means that answer comes with some assembly required. Question three, what's the best way to get from Kansas City to Columbus, Ohio? To answer this question requires a two-stage process of gathering information about travel options and then evaluating the results based on parameters not stated in the question. We already know that it's possible to fly to Columbus, although no direct flights are available. A quick look at a map shows that it's also a relatively straightforward drive of about 650 miles. That's the information gathering stage. Now we have to evaluate the results based on things like cost, time and effort required, practicality given the purpose of the trip, and the personal preferences of the traveler. For a business traveler for whom shortest possible travel time is more important than lowest cost, the final decision may be very different than for a college student with a large dog. Although all three questions require information gathering, for the purposes of this course, we are going to call questions like number one and number two homework questions, because you can find the answer just by going to a single reference source and looking it up and save the designation research question for questions like number three, for which developing a fully functional answer requires both gathering relevant information and then assembling it in a meaningful way. So for the purposes of this course, research is the process of finding the information needed to answer your research question and then deriving or building the answer from the information you found. In other words, it is the physical process of gathering information plus the mental process of deriving the answer to your research question from the information you gathered.
What is research writing? From the English Composition II Open Access course. Research is the physical process of gathering information plus the mental process of deriving the answer to your question from the information you've gathered. Research writing is the process of sharing the answer to your research question along with the evidence on which your answer is based, the sources you used, and your own reasoning and explanation. The essential components or building blocks of research writing are the same no matter what kind of question you're answering or what kind of reader you're assuming as you share your answer. The essential building blocks of research writing. One, do real research. Begin from a question to which you don't know the answer and that can't be answered just by going to the appropriate reference source. That is, begin from a research question, not a homework question. Decide what kind of information or data will be needed in order to build the answer to the question. Gather information and or collect data and work with the information or data to derive or construct your answer. This is the research process, and it happens before you begin to write your paper. No research, no research writing, so don't shortchange this part of the process. Two, create a one-sentence answer to your research question. This will be the thesis statement, main point, or controlling idea of your research paper. And three, share your answer to research questions in a way that makes it believable, understandable, and usable for your readers. To do this, include plentiful and well-chosen examples from the data or information you gathered. Indicate the validity of your data by accurately reporting your research method if you conducted field or lab research. And indicate the quality of your information by accurately citing your sources if you conducted source-based research. How Digipo, or the Digital Polarization Project, defines a fact from web literacy for student fact checkers. We take a rather old fashioned view of what a fact is in this text. For us, a fact is a claim about which there is general agreement by people in the know. Most claims aren't facts and aren't intended to be presented as facts. People make claims all the time. I may claim that Mulholland Drive is the best film of the 2000s. You may claim that Spider-Man 2 is. People can disagree about these things. These are claims, but they are not facts. Some types of claims, however, also qualify as statements of fact. It is a statement of fact, for example, that Mulholland Drive was directed by David Lynch, and it's a statement of fact that Sweet Home Alabama starred Reese Witherspoon. Facts don't have to be physical. It's a fact that Sweet Home Alabama deals with questions of what is most important in life, and that Mulholland Drive investigates how the stories we tell ourselves differ from the reality we inhabit. Facts can even deal with situations that are hypothetical. We can say that it's a fact that Sweet Home Alabama would have cost less if it was shot in Serbia instead of in Georgia and Alabama. For us, a fact is something that is generally not disputed by people in a position to know by those who can be relied on to accurately tell the truth. That's it. When we talk about facts, we're usually attempting to get at truth, but the measurement of what qualifies as fact is that it meets those three criteria. That said, there's a whole lot to be said about those criteria. Position to know, expertise, opportunity, and access. Let's start with the second one. Who are the, quote, people in a position to know, end quote? Generally, a position to know denotes expertise or opportunity. Let's take a car accident as an example. Your car and my car collide on a deserted road. Who is in a position to know what happened? Well, obviously you and I. If we both agree to what happened, say, we both agree that I drifted into the oncoming lane due to a lack of sleep, 
we can treat that as a fact. Perhaps someone else disagrees with that. No, says a person who reads the account of the crash in the newspaper. That's not how it happened at all. Do we suddenly have to start treating this account of the crash as a claim that does not have the status of fact? It depends. The crucial question is whether this third person is in a position to know. Did they see the crash? Then yes, we have to stop treating our account of the crash as fact. Do they have some deep knowledge of crash forensics that shows the crash is impossible? Are they a crash expert? Well, yes, then perhaps the fact is in dispute, though to override the evidence of our claimed experience, we'd want more than a single expert opinion. We'd want expert consensus. On the other hand, if they did not see the crash, but instead believe that very few crashes happen due to lack of sleep and therefore this cannot be an explanation, then no, we can still treat this as fact, because the people in a position to know are in agreement. The disagreement of a person not in a position to know does not undo that. With questions involving expertise, position to know generally indicates expertise, but even here there is opportunity at work. As an example, consider the recent debate over whether the Russian government was responsible for feeding the Democratic National Convention emails to WikiLeaks. To have an informed opinion on this issue, you'd need some expertise in cybersecurity forensics. But just having the expertise is not enough. To evaluate the issue, you'd need access to the systems that were hacked, log files, operating system, etc. Indeed, one of the struggles with that issue was that the people with both access and expertise were not always trusted to tell the truth. This leads to a situation where we can say it is highly likely the Russian government ordered the distribution of the information to WikiLeaks, but we cannot accord it the status of fact. By the same token, opportunity isn't always enough. A person may take a photograph, for example, of something they think is a lynx, but turns out, when reviewed by experts, to be a cougar. If three people witness an animal dart across the road, and one works in a zoo, we might be inclined to weight the zookeeper's opinion of what the animal was more heavily. Because position to know is so important to claims of fact, when we look at sources, we are always asking ourselves, what puts this person in a unique position to know? If the answer is nothing in particular, then we find new sources. One final thing, and it's perhaps the hardest thing to swallow. In most cases, we, the readers, are not in a position to know about specific facts ourselves. Our experience matters, but as readers, we tend to vastly overrate its value in ascertaining questions of fact where we have neither expertise nor opportunity. We don't get a vote on the facts. We get a vote on who is most credible. And this means we usually have to trust someone other than ourselves. Generally means generally. What about this other phrase, generally not disputed? What does that mean exactly? It's difficult to say. Imagine you are interviewing 20 people about a wedding reception. 10 of them say that the wedding cake was chocolate and 10 say, no, that's wrong, it was yellow cake. In this case, we have a clear dispute and can't really treat the type of cake as fact. But say that 19 people said the cake was yellow cake and one said it was chocolate. In this case, we're likely to treat the type of cake as fact and assume that the 20th person may have misremembered the event or had some weird ulterior motive for lying about the cake. What that line is, where something is generally not disputed, is a question of much debate. It may vary depending on the importance of the question. For a relatively silly question like cake type, four out of five people may be enough to say the question is settled. For issues of greater importance, generally may require a higher percentage. Importantly though, for questions where a lot of people are in the know, that percentage does not have to be 100%. Why? Because even people in the know make mistakes, 
and because people in the know may have reasons for not telling the truth. A good example of this is evolution. Evolution, the process by which organisms evolve into new organisms over time, is fact. It's fact not because every person on the planet has gone over the evidence individually, but because the people who are in the best position to interpret that evidence, biologists, geologists, zoologists, etc., are in almost unanimous agreement on this point. But that does not mean that all scientists are in agreement. In fact, 13% of scientists disagree with evolution. Admittedly, the vast majority of those people are neither biologists nor experts in evolution. They are various chemical engineers, physicists, and medical professionals. However, if you dig deeper, you will even find a biologist or geneticist here or there who disagrees with what most scientists see as one of the foundational truths of biology. If something is so obviously true, how come there is not 100% agreement? One answer is that maybe the dissenters have it right, and that certainly has happened before. It was, of course, a fact 600 years ago that the sun went around the earth. So sometimes dissenters are right and the facts are wrong. More often, when there is overwhelming agreement and a small amount of dissent, it's just human fallibility. People looking at the same evidence with the same intelligence and the same authority come to different conclusions. Sometimes the minority have a stake in the outcome that can bias them or just have a different way of looking at things. Again, this sort of dissent is good and is necessary to the progress of science, technology, and culture. But when we're asking whether something is a fact, we are not asking whether something has a 100% chance of being true or whether agreement on it will last for all time. We are asking whether enough people in the know agree on it that we can treat it as a settled question and move forward on it, either to action or more complex claims. Truthfulness and fact. It is popularly assumed that the biggest question to ask in media literacy is whether people are lying to you or not. Indeed, bias, the tendency of people's beliefs, incentives, or financial interests to influence what they promote as true, can make some experts or witnesses untrustworthy. If we return to our car crash example, two people crash into one another with different stories on how it happened. It certainly makes sense to examine the motivations each of those persons may have for lying. At the same time, I'd argue that in fact-checking, it's more useful to make truthfulness the question you pursue second, not first. To explain, in any given situation, the people in the best position to know something are generally a small group, since people with both the opportunity to review evidence and the expertise to evaluate it are limited. If you're looking for the fastest way to whittle down who to trust, expertise and opportunity get you there more quickly. After that point, after you've whittled down your trusted circle based on these position-to-know attributes, you may still find disagreement. And at that point, it's useful to ask whether the disagreement is an honest disagreement or is a result of hidden or not-so-hidden motivations. The danger of asking the truthfulness question first is that everybody has some bias, so it quickly becomes very easy for a reader to eliminate credible sources because, of course, they would say that, wouldn't they? If you ask yourself who would be in a position-to-know first, and go to the truthfulness question second, you'll be able to validate sources more quickly and more reliably. You'll also be able to see more clearly any true bias that may be influencing your group of experts.